Hello, loyal blog readers, and thank you for welcoming us this week. I'm joined by my colleague and associate, Nick Baltax, and today we're going to talk about um, settlement approval in the class action context. Nick, thanks so much for joining us on this week's podcast. Thank you for having me, Jay. You know, it's always a pleasure. Well, Rule 23 does many things, and one of the things it regulates is the process by which a court must approve a settlement. Um, in uh, general litigation, I think probably 98% of cases are disposed of either on motions to dismiss or by settlement. What about in the class action context? How are cases handled and how do they exit the court system? So similarly, there's very rarely trials to verdicts in the class action context. The reason for that is trials are not just very financially expensive in terms of legal fees, but present a large amount of financial exposure and a large possibility of an adverse verdict that could be very, very financially harmful and present unacceptable risks. So because of those risks, class actions are typically resolved before on the heels of class certification order. As you stated, Rule 23 not only provides a process for the certification of a class action, but it also provides a procedure for the settlement of the class action. Specifically, Rule 23E lays out a three-part settlement approval process that includes preliminary approval, which is approval that provides notice to the putative class, notice to the class members, and finally, final settlement approval. Well, our Dwayne Morris Class Action Review has a chapter in and of itself with respect to key settlements as well as settlement approval issues. And as general counsel that I deal with often say, if I'm going to settle a class action, I only want to settle it once. I want a broad settlement bar. What are some of the positive attributes or reasons to settle a class action? Yeah, so there's benefits to both sides of the aisle for settling these class actions a, um, on an early basis. From the plaintiff's point of view, and a reason that you see a lot of plaintiff's attorneys and plaintiffs being, really just being willing to settle these sorts of cases at an early stage, you get payment quicker. And even with the class approval, the class settlement approval process, that can take a longer period of time. So you want plaintiffs generally want to settle this on an early side so that they can get the money quicker. However, on the side of the employers or the defendants, as indicated before, getting to trial in these cases is usually a very expensive process in terms of legal fees. So settling early avoids the high costs, including all the burdens and discovery-related costs that come from having to defend class actions that you don't see in other non-class-related litigation. You also see benefits to the court system by avoiding needless litigation that clogs court dockets, especially in the context of these class actions or these cases, depending on the size of the putative class and issues of manageability and other class certification issues can take multiple weeks. Additionally, although class action settlements are matters of public record, they generally contain provisions where a defendant will not admit liability, which can also be positive for the publicity for that defendant. Finally, and importantly, a settlement will bar anyone who is in that class and receives remuneration, in other words, does not opt out, from bringing claims. And those settlements can be crafted to be 
as broad as possible and to eliminate as many claims, assuming that the plaintiff, named plaintiff is agreeable in the court approves. Thank you for that overview of the process. Uh, chapter 20 of the Dwayne Morris Class Action Review um, analyzes the significant settlement approval uh, decisions rendered in state and federal courts. Uh, briefly, based on your analysis and review of those, uh, uh, an array of those decisions, what are some of the common obstacles or objections that judges in reviewing class action settlements uh, focus upon in terms of issues where settlements are not approved? In order to secure the court's approval to send notice to the class regarding that settlement, there must be sufficient information provided to the court in order to determine whether or not it will be likely to approve the settlement and certify the class purely for the purposes of the judgment. Rule 23E itself actually includes a detailed list of factors that must be considered before the final approval of the class settlement. Those factors include things like the quality of class representation, uh, whether the negotiation took place, place at an arm's length, the adequacy of class relief, and the equitable treatment of class members. So you'll see a lot of discussion on whether or not the negotiations were fair, whether the agreed upon number provides proper relief for all of the class members. And those are some of the bigger obstacles that you'll see facing approval and also mostly the reasons that a court is going to push back and not approve of a proposed class action settlement. I think one of the common myths in the class action space is that once you settle a class action, it's pretty much a rubber stamp approval process. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, uh, the law is different in every jurisdiction and the practice locally is different uh, in front of every court. But if there is one trend, it seems to me that in California, more so than in any other geographic uh, venue, uh, judges are very uh, strict in reviewing class action settlements and are more apt to deny approval probably than in any other um, jurisdiction. Um, what does this mean overall for both plaintiffs' counsel and defense counsel in terms of the practice of how they craft a settlement, what it should look like, and how it's presented to a court? So the settlement process being as non-rubber stamp as it is, and a court-by-court -court basis applying these standards on non-identical fashions present a lot of strategic dilemmas for both parties when they're crafting a settlement agreement. For example, for a defendant, you have to consider how much you'd be willing to concede in the settlement agreement without losing your ability to defend the case to the extent the settlement falls through or the settlement is not approved by the court. You also have to consider if a settlement is going to be viewed as not sufficient, potentially too cheap by a court, or deemed inadequate or unfair when reviewed and considering all of the putative class members. And also, as indicated, you have to consider how broad you attempt to make the release. It is a strategic positive for a defendant to make as broad of a release as possible, to secure as much protection for class claims coming from those class members, but too broad of a release might get pushed back from the court. We saw a lot of these issues in a more recent case that has been continuing to develop over the past few months, which is Lusk versus Five Guys. As you indicated in California, there seems to be a very stringent class action approval process 
in the Eastern District of California. Lost Versus Vibe Guys is now on its fifth attempt to have class certification approved from that district court. They had chances in December 2019, October 2020, June 2021, and in a recent denial in 2022, the court looked at things such as the willingness to pay $1 million to settle claims that it had discredited in its briefs as a perverse set of circumstances. Um, the, the court looked to cautiously and rigorously scrutinize the attempt to settle the class action and even warned the parties to carefully consider how they would like to proceed before filing another motion of this kind. And it would not consider a new motion that merely tinkers with the same details that the previous motions have already presented. So as indicated by you know, the, this rule, and as you kind of mentioned with California, it's, it's a strict process. It's not a very simple rubber stamp. You don't see most cases get to a fourth or a fifth go around, but you do see courts really scrutinize what the parties are bringing forward in their class action approval motions. That's a fascinating case and case study. It reminds me of kind of the counterintuitive notion that defense counsel is bargaining for the lowest possible settlement. And that's true, but also the lowest possible settlement that a court will approve. And kind of evidence of that is the famous or infamous, depending on how one looks at it, uh, uh, Facebook BIPA settlement, where the parties presented a $550 million settlement to the court. And the court said, that's inadequate. That's not enough of a payment to the class and sent them into the room, so to speak, to renegotiate the deal. And months later, um, the deal was sweetened to $650 million and then the court uh, approved it. So certainly not a rubber stamp process. And certainly there are situations where a court may force the parties uh, back to the negotiating ta uh, table to change sweeten, revise the deal to the extent the court may feel it's unfair. Another area of concern um, is not the plaintiff's uh, lawyer or the named plaintiff, but class members who may register an objection. And there is a process in Rule 23 for the court to undertake and hear and rule upon objections to class action settlements. How does that work in this space? So objections are very common in the class action settlement sphere. And on certain occasions, objectors can even be successful in overturning the settlement or getting it vacated on appeal. One really interesting example from the last year was Saucio v. Peck. In that case, plaintiffs brought a class action and representative claim under PAGA based on different alleged violations of the California Labor Code. Several years of litigation passed and the parties reached a settlement. The district court, overruled the objection of an objector who had filed a separate PAGA claim in a different case, but was not a party to the underlying PAGA claim. In this decision, the Ninth Circuit opined that the objector had no right to appeal on the action to which he was not a party. However, with respect to the class action settlement at issue in the appeal, a different objector argued that in evaluating the proposed pre-class pre-certification settlement, the district court erroneously applied the presumption of fairness. The district court considered that the parties engaged in an arm's length, serious, informed, and non-collusive negotiation. Both councils were experienced and knowledgeable and therefore applied a presumption of fairness. fairness. However, the Ninth Circuit reasoned that in the pre-certification context, the district court should have employed a higher standard of fairness 
and put in a more probing inquiry into what would normally be inquired under Rule 23E. It remanded the case for further proceedings based on that language. Another area of concern are attorney's fees where the court in the final approval hearing has to adjudicate the petition for attorney's fees and award of costs uh, filed by class counsel. And this is an area where there are both objections and where um, courts uh, want to make sure that plaintiff's counsel are not getting rich off the backs of the class. And they tend to be very noteworthy rulings uh, where a court will measure uh, the lodestar and the amount of hours and fees that go into the class action settlement. In terms of the past 12 months, were there some notable rulings in this space that would bear upon uh, ideas about how to negotiate settlements? Attorneys' fees awards and the requests that come with them are heavily scrutinized in the class action context, not only because of money that's at risk, but because of the fairness that underlies the entire class action settlement process. This sort of calculation and the request for attorneys' fees will often lead to very heavy-handed disputes, especially when they come at the end of an already hard-fought class action of the settlement at, at risk. Nonetheless, you see a lot of class counsel attempting to recover for their time attributable and leading to disputes that, as you said, come quite often into these sorts of cases. One of the most recent ones was found in the Fifth Circuit in Fessler versus Porcelana Corona de Max. This was a putative class of consumers who sued Porcelana, who was a toilet uh, manufacturer, for providing or in manufacturing detective toilet tanks. They settled the case in two parts, first entering into a partial settlement over certain models that Porcelana manufactured in a specific plant, the Benito Juarez plant, between 2007 and 2010. At this point, the plaintiffs sought to certify the claims that were not settled, and the district court denied the motion. The parties then subsequently released a, reached a class-wide settlement agreement for the second portion and filed a motion for an awards of attorney's fees for the two classes. Porcelana then challenged the amount sought, arguing that the recovery by plaintiff's counsel should be limited to the hours spent on behalf of the successful class claims only. The district court granted that motion, finding it practically impossible to identify which hours should be moved from the, removed from the attorney's fees award and be allocated to either one class claim or the other class claim. Instead, it simply reduced the lowest amount that it was going to award to the attorneys. Upon appeal by Porcelana, the Fifth, Circuit, the Fifth Circuit reversed the district court's order on the fee award. It held that specifically when an attorney's fees requested by class counsel is supported by time spent on both successful and unsuccessful claims, the district court must address the common core facts and the common legal theories sufficiently so that no fees are awarded on unsuccessful theories. The Fifth Circuit therefore vacated the attorney's fees award and remanded the case back to the district court to consider the amount of damages and non-monetary relief sought compared to what was actually received by the class. So a case like this goes to show that even in a approved settlement, the attorney's fees can be a point of dispute and that parties have to very seriously consider what could be attributed to successful class claims, what could be attributed to non-successful class claims, and how those sorts of splits could potentially lead to significant disputes in the class action settlement approval process. Those are great insights from the Fifth Circuit. I know that a lot of people are uh, sometimes unaware that actually in California or in the Ninth Circuit, 
the benchmark in attorney's fees is 25%. And in many areas of the country, there are 33%. And there are some instances where courts have awarded 35 up to 40 or 42%. So location, location, location is everything when it comes to settlement approval, uh, as well as awards of attorney's fees. Well, thank you, Nick, for joining us on this week's uh, podcast. The Class Action Weekly Wire and signing off for Nick and myself, Jerry Mattman here at Dwayne Morris. Have a great day.